0: Have passed since Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine. In this episode, we draw conclusions and we're trying to reflect what can we expect this year. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yadmolank. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Oharkova, who leads the International Department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our trips to the frontline humanitarian and volunteer trips to the frontline at ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Okay, Tanya, so let's, let's talk. Uh, one year have passed. We are on 24th of February 2023. We all remember the day, 24th of February 2022. What, what was this year for, for you, for, for us, for the country?
1: Well, indeed, this is, it's easy to get emotional about the date because uh, the souvenirs are quite vivid in all the memories of millions of Ukrainians in ours as well. We will never forget this date, uh, this day, the 24th of February, when everything collapsed. Even if we were informed about this uh, possible offensive, but uh, you, you're never prepared for the war, what we discovered in the first hours and days of this invasion. I would say that, um, We've learned a lot during this year, but most importantly, uh, we are extremely happy to be to still be alive, uh, to see that our country still exists, that it's still uh, sovereign. So we were able to stand to stand against this aggression, even if uh, a lot of things are to be done in the following months and even years. We just don't know, but uh, Ukraine exists, and it's even reinforced on the international. International level and the international agenda, uh, it stands high, and uh, this battle and this resistance is recognized as uh, existential, uh, not only for Ukraine but the whole continent by many countries. And I would say that we we lost it this invisibility, so we we left this shadow. We've been for many years and decades, and now when we talk. People listen to us, and this is also important. So, um, we see the clear, quite clear that uh, we will cross a lot of challenges and tragedies uh, in the following months. Uh, But uh, we are sure that that the victory will be Ukrainian.
0: Yes, there is this confidence, which is uh, which strikes um, always our international partners when we talk that. Basically, in many layers of the society, there was this confidence of victory from the very, very first days. And this is something really incredible. Um, the, the the confidence that Russians will be unable to, uh, to capture Kiev, the confidence that Russians will be unable to uh, turn Ukraine into a failed state and into its satellite, and it was present i remember sitting in kyiv and and you remember that very well in march when the city was you know some people said encircled it was never encircled actually but it was half encircled from from the north from the north uh, northwest a little bit from the northeast, uh, but there was this confidence in the city. The city was half empty, but there there was this kind of a city fortress. And I remember those episodes. For our listeners, you can turn back to those episodes when we with Tanya were broadcasting our podcast almost every day, uh, sitting in Kyiv and then sitting in Kamynets-Podilsky with our kids and then back to Kyiv etc so this was a very interesting time and podcasting was for us also a, a a method of our internal mobilization because it it gave a sense that we are despite all these dangers that we are acting that we we have our little small contribution to the victory and uh we got lots of emails, lots of uh messages uh throughout this year when people were listening to the podcast, when we were people were listening, uh reading Ukraine World and Ukraine Crisis Media Center.
1: Yes, exactly. This feeling of being capable to do something, I think we share it with millions of, other, millions of other Ukrainians. So maybe the worst thing that could happen to you during the war is the loss of the control. So uh, maybe the, the worst thing of the first day is then you understand that everything is ruined and things are out of your control. So you can do nothing you're a civilian. You, for example, for me, I'm a woman. We can do nothing about that. And this uh, helpless um, feeling, you know, when the feeling that you are helpless, is maybe the first thing uh, which we have ever uh, experienced. But, and this explains precisely why millions of Ukrainians, at least thousands of thousands uh, were so much motivated and were so, so much ready to, to act so immediately in the first hours and first days and first weeks. And this is this kind of uh, a feeling that you can do something it, it saves you from this uh, feeling of being useless. So uh, when you feel that you are useless, maybe the worst thing uh, you could experience. And um, at the same time, what is remarkable about this invasion day, um, and it seems important to me, that uh, it has uh, some parallels with what happened uh, in 2004 and then in 2013-14 during the Euromedan times. So Ukrainians as a nation, we have... And this is the key to our success in resisting this invasion is that we have uh, this positive experience of when you act together, uh, you are creating these networks of, of whatever, of resisting, uh, you can succeed. So what we experienced in 2004 and then in during Euromaidan times, Yanukovych left, we changed the regime. Uh, we have this. Uh, idea and this experience, most importantly, then when you do something, you can succeed. And that is precisely why many Ukrainians, for sure, uh, fled the country with kids, families, etc. But many others stayed and they resisted and they resisted with success. I think this is an important experience which shape in a way what Ukrainians are and how do they feel and how do they act in the present time.
0: Yes, and we keep on repeating the same, actually, the same story is that uh, Ukraine showed really that its uh, its essence is this grassroots level, that its essence is not embodied in, in any particular politician, in the oligarchs or whatever else. Its essence is, is very grassroots. It comes from from very be, very low, let's say, sorry for this metaphor, but very grassroots elements of the society. And then this feeling is actually penetrating everybody, many people. So this remarkable mobilization when people went, volunteered for the, to the front line or they volunteer to help the army or they they build the checkpoints in in their own village taking rifles taking uh, building these barricades it's it's all over ukraine so ukraine has changed architecturally you know in a significant way because in in every village there were these new constructions made of sand of wood of concrete and interestingly that there is no clear model of of the barricade so you can actually study the barricades we traveled across Ukraine and every every particular region we have a different form of the barricade Remember that, so because uh, it's a
1: sign of the spontaneous, series. yeah, are people just coming, were doing whatever they can with, with whatever they had
0: at that moment. It's, right? it's really a bricolage when you take what what is at hand, and and you make something. So I, I guess that would be a, a very interesting thing to make this anthropological map or a classification of the barricades in Ukraine. And and this is just a metaphor, of course. This is just a, this a, a image of of that. So and and this is this shows uh, how democracies can be stronger than autocracies because democracies. This is what Ukrainian experiences tells us, and it's basically goes brings us back to the classics of political thought, to people like Tocqueville, or people like Montesquieu, who understood this very well. And I think this understanding has lost has been lost today. Democracy is not only about institutions, not only about rule of law, not only about free elections or just judiciary. It's very important. But uh, behind that, you should have a democratic political culture. You should have people who believe in their community. And even Montesquieu was saying that the key uh, virtue of republic And democracy is the love of citizens towards their community. And this is something we have seen. So democracy is stronger than autocracies because they empower, they are built on empowered citizens. Every citizen uh, has his or her understanding of his or her responsibility. I can change something. Uh, who if not myself this is a key message of these true democracies who are very grassroots uh, and this is in opposition to the autocracies in which the key maxim is that somebody but not myself.
1: Yeah and on the same time this is the opposite of what geopolitical vision of the conflict is so when you are inside the conflict you you see that uh, this is a force of empowered citizens which change which could change things and we experience that and on the other view we, you have this vision on conflicts in peace purely geopolitical perspective stating that, look, this is a war uh, of, I don't know, United States against Russia or Russia against the United States. So what is overlooked in such a geopolitical vision of the conflict is that you ignore people who are on the ground and who act on the ground and these communities and the local places and these villages – Traveled a lot with you across the country during all these long months of the conflict. We've seen many different things and many different people and many different regions, and we witnessed that in in every region you have a different story of resistance and different people and different formula of how they how they acted. For example, in Sumer there were one story of these blocked cities, and then in and then in Kherson, we, we, have seen people who were resisting even under occupation. And then what we've seen in Kyiv region is different from what we've seen in Kharkiv. So it means that, that local, local is important. And, uh, what is specifically, um, um, visible when when Russians talk about that conflict and when some some conspiracy uh, inspired by some conspiracy series analysts uh, talking in from Europe they overlook this power of of people, and it means that they overlook democracy, so this power of people to act to to be to take responsibility for your own life, but not only for your own life but some some part of the community life so and I think that this feeling of responsibility for what you are and for the place you are um, is uh, stronger, much stronger today than one year ago. What we, what we know, what we feel, and what we experience, and what we people are talking about—that Ukrainians started to to like, to cherish what they had during the war. Because when you see how easy is it to destroy everything—I don't know your your house, your park, your your administration building—I don't know your village—you start to cherish what you have, and you. You, you start to invest more in what you have and to defend more what you have. And this local dimension is extremely important because people never will never die for an abstract thing. That's why, precisely why Russians have so much problem today to motivate young people to participate in the war because when they explain, uh, look even a couple of days ago putin uh, addressed uh, young people in this luzhniki concert and i it was i noticed he was using this expression of uh, our soldiers are defending the borders the borders of our uh, motherland what, what what kind of borders he's talking about we just don't know what the borders are because they, in their constitution they include uh, the Parisian, Kherson region, Donetsk and Lugansk region, but nobody is able to say where it ends this empire. And And when you try to motivate people to die for that, this is ridiculous because you just, this is not your land and you just even don't know what you are defending. So these abstract things, these pathetic things, they are just not functioning. And this is precise difference with what we live in Ukraine because people, I mean, ordinary people, peasants or whatever, farmers or whatever, workers, any kind of people, when they were defending their land, they were defending their homes. Very concrete and precise things, Right.
0: Yes, I think this is one of the lessons of this war is that uh, Ukraine is profoundly local and there is this local identity, this local patriotism. And, uh, you know, people were talking about how Ukraine is different, east from west and north from south. But at the same time, this locality has become very important. Eastern Ukraine is different from western Ukraine. Central Ukraine is different from southern Ukraine. And there are forests there are steppes, there are mountains, there are plains there are that there, there is sea there is there are rivers everything you 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 have and it played a very in a very interesting way and russia indeed one of the troubles one of the diseases of russia russia is uh, has shown that it is profoundly sick it is profoundly ill. And uh, this concert that you mentioned is one of these one of the symbols of that, but uh, Russia has no locality, no feeling of locality, and therefore there is this trend to go outside, as if you, you you want to close your eyes on what you already have.
1: And paradoxically, let me add one important thing. So, if you look at what uh, sociologists say, polls say about how Ukrainians feel, um, they also say that. Uh, apart from this local identity and local anchorage uh, of the of the of the how people feel and what they defend, there's also a quite distinct race of Ukrainian identity. So during this year only, most of Ukrainians say that first of all the identity is Ukrainian. So it's a kind of dialectic. So you are Ukrainian wherever you are, in I don't know, in Kamyanka close to frontline in the in the Kharkiv region, Donetsk region, or in Ivano Frankivsk in Kiev or in Odessa, you define yourself as Ukrainian and you see no contradiction. Yes, being Ukrainian doesn't mean to be to be to be similar everywhere. It it means to you can you can be different. You can live in different places, in different landscapes, in different type of types of housing. Uh, you might speak different Types of Ukrainian dialects or whatever, you have, can, can have different accents and we experienced that when you travel, we traveled across the country, people and close to the front line in Donetsk region, they speak Ukrainian, but they have a different, uh, I don't know, uh, accent or even dialect of this uh, and but they still are Ukrainians. so they define them as a unity and i think that war but this is natural that the conflict the word provokes that the solidification of the nation this is um, maybe natural but we, we went through during all this year and now we have this um, this unity in the nation we've never had before
0: Yes, I agree, uh, absolutely. Uh, but it is wrong to to say that some people are saying that like Putin helped to, con- to consolidate the Ukrainian identity, this invasion helped it. I think there was the, this process, and we have seen, uh, starting from the 90s, how this Ukrainian identity, uh, which is anti... To, well, how you define Ukrainian identity, of course it has these elements of ethnicity and culture, people turn to Ukrainian language, Ukrainian traditions, songs... Uh, vyshevankas etc but there is a very important uh, element which is focused on values and this is precisely republican values democratic values anti-tyrannical values that you don't accept tyrannical uh, violence that you don't accept this and of course it, it it goes very deep into European history into wider broader world history when the history of, of fights between the idea of freedom and, and the idea of fear Um the next thing um, I would like to say, so so these uh, identities, of course, was gradually consolidating and uh, maybe Russians understood it and maybe they, they were so much irritated by this and, and they wanted to stop it. And by wanting to stop it, they only accelerated this process. And this is a very, very important thing. The next thing I would like to talk about is that this year showed that Ukraine has a uh, profound transformative capacity, and does, uh, Russia does not. And this is, I think, one of the differences. We see this feeling of transformation on the personal level, on the national level, how people become different than themselves. Uh, how, for example, our president become, became absolutely different than he was before. But it was rather... Uh, the, the reflection, the mirror of the whole trend. How civilians become soldiers, how civilians become warriors, how the sellers in the supermarkets become snipers, how theologians become we, we know our friend uh, uh, Yuri he he is a bright Ukrainian theologian and philosopher now he adds the uh, one of the very important battalions of snipers. How we personally, the academics, the the university professors, journalists turned into people who go regularly to the front line and buy uh, vehicles for the front line all the time. So everybody has transformed. But on the other hand, we see Russia, which is not transforming at all, which doesn't have really energy. Ukraine shows how much energy, the young energy it has. And when you look at what is happening in Russia, this recent address of Putin to the Federal Assembly, look at the faces of people who are sitting in the room. They are tired. They are old. Really, the, the faces which I look when I look at them, it's it's really reminded me on, of of Gogol. These are typical Gogolesque faces. Grotesque, uh, deformed, deformed with with uh, with with corruption, with boredom, with with uh, with old age. Uh, not also... a, not emotional at all, having no energy at all, like half the dead souls. Right, these are real the dead souls which 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 we have seen, and this lack of energy, this lack of invention, this lack of uh, lack of lack of young energy shows that. Actually, yes, Putin would like to imitate Stalinism or fascism, but he he's actually imitating Brezhnevism or the age of Andropov, uh, as Anipolbaum told me in a podcast. Uh, that's very interesting, right? Yes,
1: exactly. It's also always a trip to the past. So the, the main reminiscence from this uh, meeting, from the, his address to federal assembly, was uh, Soviet, Soviet times, so when he was talking specifically about internal agenda. It reminded me a lot of our childhood when we, what we've seen on the TV when Brezhnev, I don't remember, Andropov was talking to, to to the Communist Party. So it was like that, and yes, indeed. This is about the, the lack of energy and this trip to the past. So what Russia is trying to do, they're trying to go to these, uh, to its uh, previous uh, grandeur somewhere in the past. And, uh, it fails, but it's unable to, to, to imagine any kind uh, of the future. And if you look at what was said from the Russian side during all this long year of, of the war, they were saying many different things about denazification, demilitarization, about defense of the peoples of Donbass, about the defense of the borders of their motherland. Now they're talking about that. But they, they have no vision of what they really want to achieve. And in this, this lack of the vision of what to like out of this war, uh, it is significant. But Putin talked for almost two hours a couple of days ago, to his federal assembly, and he never mentioned a clear thing. What is this war for, and what kind of end he he wants for this war? On the contrary, he was talking, for example, about things like, "Well, our soldiers will have two weeks two weeks break every six months." It means that. He thinks that the war will last for, for a long time, so it each thinks small so but when exactly do you want to stop this war, and what do you like to achieve with this war? so he's trying to make the war a permanent a permanent uh I don't know, condition for the Russian society. Look this war will last forever, but our soldiers will have two weeks' break. Every six months. So it's, it sounded like that. So it means that they like the process, not the result. So it means that they don't know where are they going to. So And they, they were not pronouncing the more victory. At that very moment, they were uh, shouting victory on the concert and Luzhniki, but this is an abstract this is not a real victory when they, they even when they pronounce the word victory they're thinking about this victory day in the second world war there's no vision of what kind of victory they will be in the future so and this is really dramatic because you understand that a country started an aggression against a neighboring country a sovereign country without clear vision of what they want to achieve yeah and so make of this aggression a kind of a modus vivendi. So aggression, permanent aggression, permanent enemies are everywhere, as Putin states, so vested enemies, everything is against, everybody is against us, and we are continuing to make this war, and this is our style of life. But the war cannot be a style of life. You know, this is, a, this is if you achieve nothing, so just you suggest to your society to live forever in this state of war, right?
0: Yes, I think uh, we talked a lot on on this podcast about this kind of a cult of violence which exists in in in, in Russia and uh, not not because it exists in Russia because it exists in every tyrannical society. Tyrannical societies are built on fear. So we, the goal of the tyrant is to make people scared. And one of the conclusions we make we made with you yesterday when we looked at this Sluzhniki concert or Putin's speech. Is not scare, scaring anymore. I mean, he, he was scary one year ago when we were looking at this at his speech. He he looked, you know, decisive. He tried to look decisive, and there was this confidence that he will take Kiev in three days, in one week, or whatever. He no longer looks scary right now. He looks like a old old guy who. Want to imitate the strength, but you understand that it's it's all fake, it's all staged.
1: And you know, uh, one year ago, I remember we were avoiding uh, watching what Putin said. Uh, we had feeling, such a feeling. Uh, I know a lot of people who are afraid to look at at Russian propaganda because uh, you take it for seriously. You take it seriously. We took it seriously one year ago. But now, just we watch. I watched a huge amount of this, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes of this concert just for fun. You know, and looking at Putin's show just for fun, it means that they lost because we are no more afraid of that. So even if there would be we know there would be some more missile strikes, we know there would be some some attempts to advance in the East or maybe any kind of things. We've seen everything now and simply we are not afraid of it, right?
0: One more lesson from this war is that it has a global meaning. Uh, It's not only about Russia attacking Ukraine and trying to erase Ukrainian independence. Of course, it is very present. It is a genocidal war. This is clear for us. But it has a global meaning. Why? Because actually, when you look at what happened, what was happening, starting from the 2000s, 2000s, 2010s, it was a very interesting process of extending the spirit of liberty and freedom from Europe into, from, let's say, countries which are now in the European Union into countries which are beyond the European Union, both in Europe and in Africa and in Middle East. And uh, this is a very important process. Unfortunately, in most cases, it failed. Unfortunately, these revolutions were defeated in many the countries of the Arab world in the Middle East. We we know Syria and lots of other examples. But they were also defeated in Europe. They were defeated in Belarus. They were once defeated in Moldova. But then again, there was a... uh, pro-liberty government, which is now um, in power in Moldova, It was defeated in Georgia and it was defeated in Ukraine with Yanukovych of 2010. But Ukrainian second revolution, Euromaidan or third, uh, depends on how you count it, uh, reversed this trend. And Ukraine is a key country for the whole region. When Ukraine wins, and it will win, we are confident, this will change this process. The tyrannies in this let's say European neighborhood, but maybe all over the world will feel much weaker. And I think this is one of the one of the things we need to understand. And this is one of the things why the free world has to invest so much effort, invest so much weapons, so much finances to help Ukraine win. Because it's all about the reversing this authoritarian autocratic trend that we have seen uh, in the early 21st century.
1: Yes, exactly. And when we, what we were already talking back in 2014, and uh, uh, our European partners uh, uh, were not paying a lot of attention to that. Uh, this is uh, this war was not about localities; it was about principles. And now it's becoming more and more clear. And we understand now that we also Ukrainians we all overlooked a kind a number of conflicts uh, which took place in the past, like in Georgia, like in Georgia, partly in, in Chechnya in um, Transnistria and in Syria as well, so what happened in Syria was also a key key moment for for, the, for, for what was happening in Ukraine so this um, uh, this uprising against dictatorships against uh, totalitarian authoritarian regimes is universal, and if you are not ready to stand. For, for, democ- for democratic rule, if you are not to, uh, ready to resist and sometimes to suffer, right, to suffer for these values, it means that you will lose. And Ukrainian case might change the whole situation and because it changes the attitudes. I uh, remember when uh, there were, were wars in Georgia or in Syria, uh, there was a kind of indifference of the Western countries uh, against what, towards what was happening, because it was happening somewhere. Yeah, it was ha- happening somewhere quite far away from European continent. And uh, yes, it was a tragedy, yes, they were trying to help, but it was not about their, their own battle, you know. Now with Ukraine being very close to Europe in, in centre of Europe geographically and close to the European Union border and uh, yeah and, and all that it it proved that this conflict this time came too close to, to, to geographically to the European Union and it, it's impossible to to be to to be blind when what's happening here. And this is precisely why Ukrainian victory in this war would change uh, the situation on the continent and maybe far beyond.
0: On many B- continents.
1: And many continents, far beyond, because as far as this battle about principles, so if these democratic principles and values will win, so it will mean that there is not only principles, but there are also there are some strengths behind these principles, and it will change the attitudes of uh, a number of uh, authoritarian and totalitarian regimes, right?
0: Yes. And, and therefore, I think what is going on beyond the European Union right now is history. And uh, <clears throat> it's very interesting history, very important history. In a way, we are going, I think we might be going through in the next decades in uh, in Maghreb, in Middle East, in Eastern Europe, through the process that was happening in Europe itself in in mid-19th century up until the First World War. The movements of of democratization uh, of, you know, all the monarchies like France uh, and the movement of certain, you know, national emancipation of those countries which did not have subjectivity in history. The next... uh, topic I would like to talk about is the dynamics of this war. How can we what stages of this war we have seen? so we have seen of course this assault of the Russians in late February and early March from the very very new days as i said i I, I saw the remarkable confidence and the remark in Ukraine and remarkable defeats of Russia, for example, when they failed to take the Hostomel airport, when they, they failed to go through Bravary, where we live, when they took Bucha but didn't take Irpin, and many, many other things. And then they were defeated in late March. They just disappeared. We talked about this in in, in our podcast, that just, they just – we went – through many villages around Kiev, and everybody says us that they just disappeared in fifteen minutes on thirty first of March or first of April and this was I think the understanding of them that. If they stay, they really risk a big encirclement or a big destruction because they were really cut off from their logistics. This was the first Ukrainian victory.
1: The second stage of war took place in late spring and in summer. It was an extremely difficult times for the Ukrainian army because the main battles were in Donbass, uh, around Severodonetsk, so which was taken by Russians in summer. And some other places, it was very hard times for Ukrainians because they lacked severely uh, weapons and they asked for weapons, for artillery, uh, for all, uh, all other kind of stuff. And it took uh, several weeks, even months for, for these alt- alt- artillery units to get to the front line. And it was uh, the time when Ukrainian losses the biggest, even if we don't know the numbers, because there are no official numbers communicated, no, uh, no dynamics, we we just simply don't know them. But we really know that the the most losses of human lives per day took place in summer 2022. Uh, During this first assault, when Russia concentrated all the forces, all the forces, uh, to break through in Donbass. But at the same time, let's not forget that uh, on this first stage, when they, uh, the main assault, the main blitzkrieg was again the north of the country, there were in a huge progress of Russians in the south. So at the times they took Kherson, they took uh, uh, Melitopol, they advanced towards Mariupol. It took them many months to take Mariupol, to destroy every kind of resistance there, but they managed finally. So, and they, uh, Yes, and this part of uh, of Ukrainian ter- territory was the most problematic because because of uh, geographical reasons, because uh, Dnieper River it divides I don't know this right bank uh, Ukraine from so left bank Ukraine, so it's quite difficult to to advance there. So, and situation unfortunately has not changed a lot from these first months. Uh, apart from Kherson itself as a city, from the first weeks of this invasion, unfortunately. And this, uh, we hope it will be next cha- chapter of Ukrainian counter-offensive, but this is difficult. So the second stage in, is, took place mainly in summer, when... Ukrainians were troops were defending heroically these small localities like like uh, Rubizhne and then Severodonetsk finally, finally taken by by Russians and all that having much less much less uh, 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 weapons than Russians and for Russians it was uh, the maybe the best time they had because uh, they were able to fire up to sixty thousand artillery fires per day. So the number which they never, they no more able to fire, uh, for example, now there's three times
0: less. The next stage is September when there was a brilliant counteroffensive of Ukraine early September in Kharkiv Oblast. And everybody was so surprised. Izum was liberated. Uh, towns, villages around Kharkiv Oblast and basically... The biggest uh, amount of the Kharkiv oblast that uh, Russians have uh, captured in the early stages of the World war were liberated. And uh, what we can judge from now is that Russians simply there was there was this game changer which were HIMARS. Uh, Russians were concentrating their troops and their ammunitions, which is very important ammunition, depots. Uh, they were concentrating in one places, and when you hit it. It 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 gives a you know local apocalypse of course. As far as we know now, they don't do that. They are afraid of HIMARS. With with some exceptions, they n- no longer do that. They try to disperse their forces. But at that moment, this was a game changer. Uh, HIMARS were multi rocket launch systems are, and um, they are extremely precise and quite long range. And uh, I think what what we can judge, Russians simply panicked. And they panicked and they left uh, their equipment and they they just fled very quickly. And uh, according to some sources that we have, even for Ukrainians, the speed of this counteroffensive was a surprise. Um, again, these are some of our sources. We cannot be hundred percent sure, but that the speed and the scale of this counteroffensive and Ukrainian progress was and could have been even surprised for the Ukrainians themselves, which by the way, is maybe a good thing because it shows the morale of the Russian army that at some moment they will just flee. Um, and we traveled and, and our travel and keep on traveling a lot in these liberated areas in, in Kharkiv, Kharkiv Oblast. The next stage
1: it was the same stage, I guess uh, when with Kherson. Uh, the operation was prepared uh, all through the summer with Haimars. Ukrainian troops were hitting all these uh, military bases equipment and all that stuff in on the on the left bank, and they forced finally they forced Russians to leave uh, early November, so this is, was a termination i guess of the third phase of the war uh, which we we could call. Mm, a successful Ukrainian count or Ukraine counter Counterattacks, right? So two operations, Kharkiv and Kherson, were successful. It took uh, they took uh, in case of Kherson a couple of months to be prepared because it was not in one day. But then they they really forced uh, Russians to leave. What they did during one day only, right? So they just left. They prepared their departure. They captured everything they could. We discussed described that in our podcast already how they were stealing literally everything which they needed wanted and could get from this occupied city uh, included uh, art museum for example and then the other issues and then they finally left but they are uh, close still close to Kherson because, the, because of Nipro river they're just across the, the river and they can still uh, shell the city what they really do so and at that very moment these difficult times come because after Kharkiv operation, after Kherson operation, uh, winter comes and they uh, no no real conditions for counteroffensive and some lack of weapons on the Ukrainian side. And uh, for many months already, right? So November, December, January, and February, for four months already, uh, we are not talking about any kind of successful Ukrainian operation in 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 the front lines, and the Russians, due to what they did in September, they tr- started their partial mobilization. And they use now these new techniques in the East and they try to advance. And they advance sometimes several hundred meters uh, somewhere close to Bakhmut and they captured uh, Solidar. But we are talking about small localities because Solidar is, I don't know, 12,000 people living there before the war. And so they are advancing how they can and they pay extremely high price for that. But still... Everybody understands that we are uh, that uh, the theater uh, could change, military theater could change in the coming months, maybe in spring, maybe in summer. But um, now, maybe the the hardest is to wait, right? The hardest thing is to wait.
0: Well, we are not waiting; we are acting, uh, everybody of us. But let's let's mention three more things. Meantime, how Russians reacted to this. September operation in Kharkiv Oblast. They are reacted with three things. Uh, they have uh, announced the mobilization, to strengthening the army. They have also changed the discourse because they understood that the idea of special operation is is com- completely out of out of time. You cannot really say that this is a, you know surgical operation by some very well professionals and. You All Russians can be sitting behind the television and enjoy it, right? So they started giving this idea of a holy war, sancti- sacred war, popular war, people's war, etc. So this was a change of rhetoric to ensure mobilization, to ensure that people at least you know, have some idea behind. The second thing is that they started a real, uh, a clear war against civilian population with the huge round of missile strikes started on tenth of October uh on Kiev and on other cities. And uh, of course it doesn't mean that they didn't wage the war of against civilian population before they did it in every locality they occupied and we know about the genocidal events in Bucha, in Izum and many others. This was clear. But uh the difference was that these was events, for example, when Russians bombarded Izium with 500 kilogram bombs, destroying the whole residential buildings, or <clears throat> they did the same with Borodjanka. or they did the same uh, in in places, uh, uh, some places of Sumy or Sumy region. We have we have all seen that. We have all reported about that. But now there is, you know, these rounds of missile attacks, uh, 70, 80, 90 missiles per per launch. Uh, heating the Ukrainian energy infrastructure. And from that moment, we entered a new period for Ukrainian civilians, Ukrainian industry, economy, living through the blackouts without electricity, heating, water, mobile connection, internet, whatever else. Uh, For now, this period seems to be over. First, Russians have much less rockets, much less missiles. They are not attacking every week. They're sometimes attacking with much bigger periods. And Ukrainians, due to support of international partners, have adapted. So now we have electricity. We we don't have any any problems right now. And the third thing, very important, which will also influence the the situation, is that Russians annexed, officially annexed uh, territories, including them, into the constitution, which is a time bomb for both us and them.
1: Yes, exactly. What specifically? What I wanted to add about these referendums—they were—they um, were realized just after after the Kharkiv uh, operation, and it came to all together with mobilization. And the idea was to fix that this is ours. And uh, moreover, they included that into the constitution. So that's why they are talking about these new four regions, Russian regions, which nobody knows the real real borders of all that coming back to these missile strikes. Yes, indeed they presented is as a as an attempt to stop uh, to stop Western aid, Western help for, for Ukraine, as if they were trying to stop trains or whatever transporting weapons. But this is, was just propaganda. We all knew that and witnessed that is, this was about depriving millions, that uh, this time millions of Ukrainians, of electricity, and we were entering winter, so it was also about heating. It was also about water. This period lasted. Uh, four months from the tenth 10 of October until beginning of February, and it, it caused a lot of uh, a lot of problems for Ukrainians because during this long, all these long months, people were living in most of the regions, in the center, in the west, in the east, uh, in the south, wherever. With approximately fifty percent of electricity, sometimes less, but fifty uh, percent. So twelve hours out of twenty-four hours per day, and it also means without heating, and also means without uh, uh, connection. Sometimes without telephonic connection. So, but um, now we can say that let's hope it's over. At least um, they are not; they were not able to destroy the system, and that's why we avoid this scenario which was in place for example in Syria when the whole region sometimes they live without electricity for years so we avoided that thanks to to Ukrainian uh, workers of the of the of this energetic field but also thanks to western aid generators and all that stuff so now every, everything is functioning and uh, let's hope that this scenario will not repeat so we this battle for energy I would say Ukraine won this this battle. Uh, It doesn't mean that there will be no other attempts to to strike this infrastructure, but uh, at that very moment we can say that Ukraine wins here. Uh, What's coming uh, in the future is that the tactics used by by Russia, by Putin, has changed. Now they understand They, they failed the blitzkrieg. They failed the attempts to conquer old Donetsk region, so there were I don't know maybe ten ten different dates during the year when they just ordered Putin order to capture finally these uh, these Donetsk region. Until this date, they failed. Now, what they are trying to do? They are trying to develop this concept of the permanent war, and they will hope that one day Ukraine, uh, this bleeding country, will be too tired to resist, and their only hope is that Western partners of Ukraine one day will also be tired of investing and giving weapons and in, in, uh, assisting financially, economically, etc. And finally, uh, they will step uh, back and uh, Putin will be able to realize his plan for Ukraine. This is a walking this well, That's why he's announcing this permanent war for, for Russians, he says, two weeks of break out of six months on the front line, and that's why he tried to mobilize his society for this type of conflict. Uh, we don't know if it will work out or not, we hope it will not, but you never know. He's trying to say that this war is will always be here and we'll proceed and we are we are strong enough to keep maybe for years in such a situation and we'll wait until they become too they, they, I mean, Ukraine will become weak enough to capture.
0: Yes, yes. This is. Um, we should look into the future with understanding what is happening. So, of course, mobilization brings some results for for the Russian army. They, uh, they are kind of. A, some people say that they have already launched their big offensive in the east. It's, it's all still about Bahmut, uh Again, this is already for, I don't know, eight or nine months of this big fight uh, for Bakhmut. Bakhmut is, is not a regional center. It's an important city, but it's not Kiev, it's not Kharkiv, it's not Dnipro, it's not even Kherson. Russians cannot uh, cannot uh, take it. They take smaller cities like Solidar. There are big fights around other small cities like Vuhledar, but uh, there is a conglomerate of a bigger Towns in this region: Slovyansk, Kramatorsk, Druzhkivka, Kostantinivka, which are which are you know forty kilometers from the border. And if Russians, even if we imagine that they take Bakhmut, they will need to fight for these uh, towns as well.
1: Let me just provide one specific detail. I checked it on the Google Maps. At the distance between uh, uh, between say Horlivka which was occupied back in 2014, and Bakhmut. I was just curious to see how they advanced in the year. And guess what? It is 38 kilometers distance. So in this Donetsk region, the advance of Russians is really minimal. So we are talking about dozens of kilometers.
0: For nine years.
1: For, yeah, for nine Oh, they were not advancing uh between uh fifteen and after Minsk game they were not advancing. But if if you take all these long months of com of of, of the full scale invasion, they managed to to, to the even Never, didn't make, I don't know, 40 kilometers, right? Uh, they were successful in Lugansk region. They captured almost the whole region, not all the region, but almost uh, several villages which are still under Ukrainian control. But in Donetsk region, as far as Ukrainian positions were reinforced during all these years uh, between 2014 and 2022, and though the, the advance is minimal. So, and the the idea is to capture... The, finally, they stem uh, Donetsk region and they, they fail each time.
0: Why they they conquered Luhansk region? The explanation is very simple because the Ukrainian defense line was like a semicircle around Donetsk and then to the north of Luhansk, and Russians simply attacked from the Russian territory, and these these territories from Ukrainian side were were not defended. Okay, and therefore we understand right now why we need at this certain moment, why they need so much support from the Western powers. And uh, it is coming and it is very important that it is come quickly and that Ukraine has enough capacity to break through the Russian defense lines in the south primarily. And uh, maybe in 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 other parts, and therefore Ukraine need, needs tanks. Therefore, Ukraine needs artillery systems, and all the rest. Because Russia is weakening, we can see that it is still very strong, but this is a chance for Ukraine and for for the free world. Again, as we said earlier, to prove to show that the free world uh, is stronger than uh, than autocracies. So this was our podcast explaining Ukraine and. Uh, in this episode, we try to summarize, to sum up what was happening during this year of the full-scale war. And also made reference to the uh, development since 2014. This war lasts for nine years already. Uh, during this stage, of course, this year it was much hotter, much more large-scale. Large uh, my name is Volodymyr Yermolnik. I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host was Titano Harkova who leads the international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front line in which we help both civilians and military at paypalukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.